Okay, to introduce today's speaker, our illustrious, our debonair, <laughs> our recently lamed up but now recovering Brian Remillard, who is the section chief in renal and hypertension and associate professor of medicine. Come tell us about today's guests. Hello. It's a, it's a real uh, pleasure to introduce uh, Martin Sedlicek. Uh, first of all, I'd say there's absolutely no truth to the rumor that salary is adjusted based on the, res on the uh, evaluation of this conference by a secret formula in Department of Medicine. Absolutely no truth to that. Um, so Martin uh, was born in Berlin and spent his childhood romping around the Black Forest. Um, and I, I suspect as a child his favorite word was warum, or pourquoi, or pourquoi, or why as he speaks so many languages, but I, I'm sure he was a very inquisitive child, and that uh, plays out in today's uh, Grand Rounds. He subsequently went to the University, Université Libre de Bruxelles, which has another name, I'm sure, in Wallon, or, but, but it's never called the Free University of uh, Brussels because it's not free. He, uh, he then did his internal medicine at Cabrini Medical Center in New York and then nephrology at Mount Sinai. And we were lucky enough to, to attract him here. Uh, Martin is someone who I value greatly for his enthusiasm and curiosity. He's really kind of a renaissance person in the sense that you can talk about, if I picked one person to backpack across Europe with, it would be, or, or, the, or the world, it would be Martin, because he, he really loves uh, everything about life, cooking, culture, history, adventure. And in nephrology, he, he, he reads scientific papers all the time and always brings us a perspective from nature or science that's, you know, you'll say something about sodium and they'll say, well, it's mostly not in the, in, 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 in the extracellular fluid. It's all in the skin. And you say, what? And you think he's wrong, but then you read the paper and you go, this is amazing. And so that's the reason why we asked him to do Grand Rounds today. Um, I'd like to also highlight the fact that he's been our fellowship director at a very tough time in nephrology when nephrology isn't very popular, but he's been just an, an incredible advocate for the fellowship and, and in tough times has really kept it going and continues to do so. And lastly, I'd like to thank him for his uh, dedication to the work we're doing in Haiti. He, he all the time uh, steps up to the plate and does lectures in French for me or, or brings the residents over to his house for dinner and has been a great supporter for that, but um, it's a pleasure to have him this morning, and I'm sure he's going to tell some interesting things about tubules. Hello, so thank, thank you, and thank you for having me. So, so uh, I don't get any royalties from beverage companies, so from soda companies. So, so this is um, so this is about this is a low power view of the kidney. You know, as you can see, there's like mainly what you see is all tubules. And then there's this like Malpighian corpuscles, which are like Lomerli. They were named after Malpighi, who uh, you know is the one. He's a 17th century Italian uh, anatomist who discovered capillaries, showing that the circulation theory of of Harvey was correct, and he and he was able to see those uh, glomeruli there. As you can see, there's lots of tubules, most of kidney masses tubules, and little glomeruli. So. Um, uh, when we talk about tubular function, we have to talk about glomerular filtration to know what the tubules are doing. And then the, uh, we talk about bulk, bulk reabsorption and proximal tubule and the loop of handler. And then fine-tuning the distal tubule, normal physiology and pathophysiology. So the thing is that the, uh, the GFR is the one that, so the kidney is organized like a recycling plant. So there's everything is being like thrown away and then, uh, uh, and then everything, and then what is thrown away is being basically reabsorbed and there's more secretion. And so the scale of GFR is interesting because most of our theories to protect the kidneys are trying to decrease the GFR. So the question is, why do we need such a high GFR? And that's not really known. So it seems to have something to do with metabolism. And what you see here is like there's this, uh, this is the uh, logarithm of body weight, which corresponds to metabolism in the log of GFR. There's like a straight line here. And so, and so that most animals have a GFR because of their metabolism, especially the ones that left the water to go on land. And uh, here, this is, um, these are nephrons from vertebrates, and there are many fish here. You see that fish also have a, have a glomeruli, and fish are exposed also to a lot of metabolic stress, especially the ones that come like to, to, you know, to, to lay eggs in, uh, in fresh water. So they go from salt water to fresh water, back and forth. But there are also some fish that uh, 
sorry, that don't have glomeruli. And uh, so these are mainly bottom-dwelling fish, you know, who are in the constant water temperature, so they don't have the challenges of trying to adapt to different temperatures. And the ambush predators, like monkfish, for example, has, uh, uh, doesn't have glomeruli. And uh, so, the, uh, so how did people come up with the GFR? How was this discovered? So actually the first person who thought there was a glomerular filtration was Carl Ludwig. So he's a 19th century uh, physiologist, one of the early physiologists. It's somebody who believed that uh, all living things, living and non-living, had to obey the laws of nature. At that time, you also had vitalists who thought that the laws were different for living things and non-living things. And uh, so he just thought that, uh, he just uh, came up with this idea of filtration. And uh, he was very much disputed by another uh, professor from Germany, Heidenheim. He's from Breslau. And actually, he, he's the one who put the first numerical numbers on GFR. So he said, like, if you have that much urea, nitrogen in the urine and that much in the blood, you would need at least 70 liters filtered in order to get two liters of urine. So he said, like, to reabsorb 68 liters, that seems to be, like, kind of out of the question. You know, today we know that the GFR is actually much, much higher than that. And so now when you have such a high GFR that's dictated by metabolic needs, there's, like, some immediate questions there. So what happens to the large amount of oxygen supplied to the kidneys? The kidneys get like 20 plus percent of blood supply, right? And the other thing is there's so much sodium that's being filtered, a ton of it, so, so, what, how, so you have to reabsorb all those things. And then you can't talk about physiology without quoting Homer Smith. So Homer Smith in 1943 said, there's enough waste here, talking about the GFR, there's enough waste here to bankrupt any system except a natural one. You know, so he didn't know about the national budget, I mean, from today, you know, so to the Republican Congress. So this is a paper by Frank Epstein, and what he shows here, that here by body weight, the kidney gets a lot of blood, right? But it doesn't consume that much, it gets a lot of oxygen, but it doesn't consume that much oxygen. So the question is, what happens? to all that oxygen in the kidneys. We know that people, when people get a little bit hypertensive, they get hypoxic in their kidneys. So how can you get hypoxic when you get like more blood than the brain, you know? So, uh, so the, so the, uh, this is an experiment that raised the question about renal oxygen chant. And what they did here is, this is from the 50s, they injected methemoglobin and oxygenated blood together with methemoglobin. They injected that together. So this is first experiment, just oxygen. And then they checked if the oxygen, when the oxygen came out in the renal artery. And then they checked when the methemoglobin came out. And they saw there was a time delay so that you got a biphasic curve when you inject both together. So it looks like the oxygen comes out faster from the renal vein than the hemoglobin. So the question is, how is that? And that raises the question of a shunt. And so, the, um, so in the anatomy here, so the, the question is, is if, when there is a shunt, is a shunt like preglomerular or postglomerular? And the anatomy actually would suggest there could be a shunt because renal arteries and renal veins are very close together here. And so the... Um, uh, but then, this is not undisputed, uh, there probably also is a post-glomerular shunt that keeps the, the, the oxygen away from the medulla. Another effect is that the, because the, the, the blood that goes into the glomerular that supply the medulla come off at a straight angle of renal arteries, and the oxygen stays in red blood cells, they go straight forward to the cortex, while the blood in the med medulla actually has a lower hematocrit. And so this is, uh, so what the, the kidney here is using a countercurrent mechanism. So there's something like a renal gas exchange. And so countercurrent mechanism you find a lot in nature, such as like uh, uh, in exchange of water, solid, renal medulla, and also in the placenta. And then also conservation of body heat from limb or appendage. So like marine mammals use this, you know. Penguins, when they don't get cold, you know, they don't like uh, freeze because they recycle the heat with the legs they're standing on. And uh, also fish have a swim bladder, and this is like an example of a swim bladder. So it's called like rete mirabile, that just means uh, uh, wow, interesting, wonderful net, you know. So, uh, in, uh, so the uh, fish, they, they have a, sw a swim bladder where they have full of oxygen to control their buoyancy. And a fish also use countercurrent and oxygen extraction in gills and then man-made devices such as like a refinery, for example, or like uh, uh, dialyzers, heat exchangers, all work uh, that way. And so in the kidney, we use countercurrent, uh, uh, these countercurrent uh, 
uh, device also to concentrate urine in the, in the medulla. So in the medulla, you have much more stuff, much more, much higher osmolality than upper in the cortex. That's believed to be driven by, uh, so by uh, active transport in the thick ascending limb. And one of the big questions is, what about the tip of the medulla where you don't have a thick ascending limb? How does that work? And so it's not really figured out. So one of the fears is that is the, here's a lot of urea going in. There's a urea permeability in the, the collecting tubule. And uh, that's one of the reasons why Burton's role, why the uh, uh, transtubular potassium gradient is based on the premise that there would be no osmoles leaving the collecting duct, just water. That's, put, that's why it's not really true. You know, so we can always calculate it, but it's not really physiologic. And um, so here, so the uh, so this is so this is another interesting thing is that the red blood cells have a urea transporter, and there's very little UN in blood. So you wonder why do they have a urea transporter? You know, this was discovered with a rejection of a, a, a woman. I think uh, somebody called Kid, and it's called the Kid's antigen. So uh, and red blood cells have a urea transporter because when they go into the medulla, they need to pack urea in and then to unload it when they get out of the medulla. And if they don't do that, then uh, they're more osmotically more fragile. And also there is a concentration deficit because they dissolve the, grade, the medullary concentration gradient for urine concentration. So I thought that's, that's an interesting uh, physiological thing here. Another uh, thing where the a uh, countercurrent is interesting is Randall's plague. So, uh, you know, the stone formers often have apatite crystals at the tip of their papilla, that, uh, of their renal papilla. And uh, uh, so there's calcium and um, it gets more concentrated at the tip of the papilla also because of a countercurrent mechanism. Oops, sorry. So now, so, so now the other thing is now the kidney. So there's a lot of filtration, 160 liters. Sorry, so there's like 100, if your GFR is 160 milliliter per minute, times 60 minutes, times 24 hours, that's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of uh, uh, plasma that's going through, a lot of blood going through. And now with a sodium concentration of 140, you can make the math like how many kilograms of salt we, we would have to eat if we were not able to reabsorb it. And so this is how the kidney, and this is like the, this is the uh, concentration of sodium in the urine, and you can see that it really goes down. Most of it is all in the first part of the kidney, which is the proximal tubule and the thick ascending limb of Händler. And all this is basically uh, constitutive. This is like we just reabsorbed there. And then the rest, and then after the loop of Händler comes the, uh, the uh, sorry, it comes the thick ascending limb, and after the thick ascending limb is the juxtaglomerular apparatus, which is like a feedback loop, and after that, absorption is, is all discretionary and based on metabolic needs and regulated. Oops, sorry. And so now the thing is, the filtration will just go on and on. This is a picture of one of the first continuous arterial venous hemofiltration circuit when this was invented. So basically what they did here is as a critically ill patient who doesn't make urine, they put in uh, like an, a, a line in the artery, a filter, and a line in the vein. And the filtration is driven by the arteriovenous pressure gradient, right? And you make, and you ultrafilter. You know, filtration goes on. Even if the blood pressure is low as 50, you still get filtration. So now imagine like if ever your kidney was unable to reabsorb all that sodium, uh, you know, uh, even because because the, the, the kidney took a hit and your blood pressure is in the 50s and you would still may have a GFR of 160. So this is how Klaus Thurau came up with the idea of acute renal success, saying that actually the, the kidney is, is successful to become oliguric when you have acute renal failure because the alternative would be like bleeding out, like death, right? And so this is the sediment from acute renal failure and you can see there's cars and all kinds of stuff. So, of course, there's obstruction. There's other reasons why you're oliguric and not just tubular glomerular filtback. But um, uh, so one way how you can, like, phenotype acute renal failure is to give furosemide. Furosemide blocks tubular glomerular filtback. And so when people still make urine with furosemide, they have, like, less severe renal failure. Hmm? And so this is why furosemide works in this situation, why furosemide works at all, because... You know, when you have a tubular glomerular filtback, it would shut down the glomerulus when there's too much salt in the lumen. 
And so when you give somebody furosemide, then you, you don't reabsorb a lot of that constitutive like salt reabsorption. And the, that salt arrives in the, in the, um, uh, sorry, uh, in the, uh, where the macular densa is. Every tubule touches the glomeruli with the macular densa, and then you, it should shut down the glomerulus. So, so furosemide should actually cause acute renal failure, right? This would be working. But that doesn't happen because the way how the macular densa does know that uh, works and knows that there's salt there is the same transporter you use for salt, sodium reabsorption in the uh, uh, thick ascending limb. And so when you give furosemide, you inhibit tubular glomerular feedback. Sorry. Nope. And so another example for tubular glomerular feedback is, is for diabetes. So what happens in diabetes? So when somebody has diabetes, they, uh, they, have, to, uh, they have high blood sugars, right? That's how we know. And there's a lot of sugar in the urine. And so the tubule is primed to reabsorb all that, all that sugar. So when, the, when we, um, so when we reabsorb all that sugar, then there is... Uh, uh, sugar, glucose, sorry, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say glucose, not sugar, you know, so, uh, so the glucose is reabsorbed together with sodium. And so when there is like, so that increases the, the, the sodium reabsorption of the proximal tubule, there's less sodium arriving at the macular denser, and the tubule was saying, oh, that glomeruli doesn't get enough, doesn't get enough blood, and so that produces glomerular hyperfiltration. And now there is a new treatment here. So, the, I mean, not, not that new now. So that uh, you can impair this effect by uh, basically giving, a, a, a inhibit the transporter, SGLT2, who is responsible for the majority of uh, glucose reabsorption in the proximal tubule. And what that does is that, the, uh, that normalizes the GFR. And so what is really interesting is that, you know, uh, the diabetes treatment, we, you know, since the DCC, DCCT trial, we know that the more normal your sugars are, the less uh, complication you get. But that's never worked for macrovascular complications. So people always died from the heart disease. No matter what we're doing, there was diabetes treatment. And so the SGLT inhibitors are actually the first diabetic drugs to improve cardiovascular outcome. So this is like uh, a plot here where you see what the hazard ratio is for death. It's actually here is one, so that line doesn't come out very well. But here the total risk of death from all causes actually is reduced with these drugs. So this is really amazing. This is the first time that this is like very successful. So now the big question is, why is that so? And so this is like a busy slide that tries to explain it. You know, it explains that maybe it's hemodynamics, but then, hey, people are all on ACE inhibitor these days, you know. And then, uh, so how much sugar do you, leave, you lose? Hemoglobin A1C gets better. It gets a little better, you know. And then, uh, what's the loss? Blood pressure gets down uh, because it's like a proximal tubular di uh, di uh, uh, diuretic. You know, blood pressure has improved a little bit. And so, but the, the explanation they have here is that it could have something to do with metabolics. So the thing is that when you unload the proximal tubule, then the, uh, the distal tubule has to work more, actually. You know? So that, that means that the loop of Handler would see more sodium to reabsorb because all the sugar and sodium go there. But the, um, but the cortex might see increased oxygen con uh, uh, consumption. And one, one of the questions is that the uh, SUG inhibitors might be switching fuel to, to, to um, Sorry, to, uh, to ketone bodies rather than, uh, than fat and glucose or so. That's one of the theories. And then another interesting effect here is that the, uh, with the SGLT inhibitor, actually hematocrit increases a little bit in, in people and in animal models. And so that is probably because the glucose has to be reabsorbed by the thick ascending limb, and that creates a high oxygen demand there. And, so, and somehow that might be beneficial so that... Uh, uh, and so, so, so this is um, so it's unclear why why these, these drugs work so well. So, so here, so the SGLT inhibitors have been like called possible beta blocker for the kidneys. So the vast majority of renal oxygen consumption is is the reabsorption of sodium, right? And so when the plasma sodium is constant, and so the GFR determines the sodium load. And so because we always have like the same sodium concentration. And in the kidney, increased perfusion would increase the higher oxygen delivery, but also increases the, the workload for the kidneys. You know? and, the, and this may be a vicious cycle that the SGLT2 inhibitors interrupt. So the erythropoietin is made by interstitial fibroblasts. 
And you always have, like, um, when the kidney is hypoxic, you have higher level for, like, polycystic kidney disease. People have renal artery stenosis, and that's probably, an, there's an angiotensin II effect. And, and you know, and then uh, the ACE and AIB, they're lower hematocrit because they decrease angiotensin II. And the big mystery with erythropoietin is why in CKD we don't make it anymore. There's, like, transcriptional silencing, we don't know. So this is, like, let's go back to the, 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 the tubules. So bulk reabsorption, proximal tubule, and thick ascending limb. And then discretionary excretion, that's like the distal convoluted tubule and the collecting duct. And so here, proximal tubule transport, how does this work? Well, transcellular, it can happen transcellular and paracellular. So basically, it gets stuff out of the urine and put it into, into the blood. And so this is the transporters are driven either enthalpy, so this is our sodium potassium ATPase, generates gradients that allow all the other transporters to run. And this is where our main energy expenditure comes from. So when, you know, my, uh, when the kids go to high school, they have this great textbook of biology, and they explain it like an average person consumes about 30 kilos of ATP a day if he had to, like, eat it or so. You know, which is kind of interesting, you know, how much we need to, to keep the inside in and the outside out here. And then, and so this runs, uh, basically this powers the thing, and then all these other transporters, they are like driven by entropy. But there's also paracellular transport that's driven by electrochemical forces. So if you get the sodium, uh, if you absorb the sodium together with glucose or other solutes, then the lumen here becomes more, uh, more negative, and that pushes the chloride through the paracellular parts. And that's another way the kidney has, and it can regulate these uh, junctions here. And so the power of sodium potassium ATPA. So basically, the, if we had maximal uptake in skeletal muscle, we could have complete turnover extracellular potassium every 30 seconds. I think that's good to like remind. I mean, that's not shown that this really happens in vivo, but it gives us an idea about the, the beast we carry in us. You know, that keeps us alive here. And so the ATPase is driven by beta-2 agonists, insulin, theophylline, ca uh, ca uh, ca um, caffeine. And you can get hyperkalemia this way, and this is what we're doing when we treat hyperkalemia, basically. We use insulin to, to stimulate the sodium-potassium ATPase just a little more to, to, get the, to get the potassium out. And uh, when things go wrong, this is, would be, for example, the hypokalemic periodic paralysis, where somebody has, like, hyperthyroidism, for example, and then has an takes like a, a, like a carbohydrate meal, and, uh, and we may stimulate this a little too much. And then something that insulin does, it not only increases the sodium-potassium ATPase, it also prevents potassium from leaking out. So, the, uh, so putting the potassium inside the cell wouldn't work very well if the potassium was leaking right out, right? So that's why all those potassium channels we have in the kidney and elsewhere, they're inward rectifying. That means they have asymmetric conduction, conductance. They put the resistance, for, uh, resistance to potassium moving out, and it's easier for, for potassium to move in with those channels. That's what it means inwardly rectifying. And so uh, we all know the effect, like, so when you have, like, people hypokalemic and hypomagnesemic, uh, unless you replace the magnesium, they, they will, you know, we, uh, usually they stay hypokalemic. And that is because uh, without magnesium, these inwardly rectifying potassium channels and ROMK here is not really inwardly rectifying because potassium moves in as fast as it moves out, but because magnesium makes a blockage here, basically. So magnesium uh, puts a plug on this uh, potassium channel, and so potassium can check in, but it has a harder time to check out. And so now the paracellular transport is regulated by the molecules between the cells here. And they are the claudins. And so the, the, these are the claudins known so far. And you can see that in the proximal tubule, there's very little regulation here because the proximal tubule is like low capacity, low resistance. We just reabsorb like most of the stuff. And whereas in the thick, when we get here to the thick ascending limb, macular dense and the distal tubule, you have much more regulation by claudins. And so what's a proximal tubule now? So it's like the kidney in the kidney, you know? So the proximal tubule is basically what we have is like the, it's, it's derived from the archaic secretory kidney, you know? And so, so it's a hypermobility, low resistance, near isotonic reabsorption, reabsorbs most sodium chloride, bicarb, and enables the distal nephron to fine-tune excretion. It reabsorbs glucose, amino acid, phosphate, citrate, 
uh, uh, produces sugar, you know, so this oligoproximal bubule does. If there's a problem here, like in Falconi syndrome, then you will find some of those things in the urine that normally you wouldn't find in the urine. And so uh, one of the questions is when you have, when people have end-stage kidney disease, they sometimes still make some, um, some urine, right, even though they don't have many glomeruli. At least you don't really see them, many of them in the biopsy. There's a possibility that the proximal tubule may still be able to secrete also and make some urine. Nobody knows. You know? So it's possible that we fall back on these archaic uh, systems there. And so we just saw how important it is to not to let go of all that salt with the high GFR because we would die. The same is true for bicarbonate. So uh, uh, a 70 kilo human has about 40 nanomoles of hydrogen and 42 liters of water. And with our Western diet, net ASIC production is pretty high. So without a, bu a, bu a buffer, a body temperature would be less than three within an hour, like incompatible with life. So we need to keep our bicarbonate. We need that buffer. And so because of our diet is mainly acid-producing, our proximal kidney is perpetually, the kidney in general is perpetually in a, in a hydrogen-secreting mode. The, the lowest urine pH we can get is 4.5, thanks to the distal tubule. And the urinary buffer carries the majority of the hydrogen. So hydrogen, we can't have too much alone in the, in the kidneys. So hydrogen binds to citrate and to phosphorus and, and to ammonium and comes out this way. So, um, so here, this is the phosphorus is called here, and sulfur and other things that can be titrated with hydrogen. It's called titratable acid. But when we really have a metabolic acidosis, we need ammonium to help get rid of the acid here. And ammonium is produced uh, from glutamine, and glutamine comes from muscle. And that's why when people have a metabolic acidosis, they lose muscle mass. And in, in the clinic, when we have people of chronic kidney disease, we supplement bicarbonate to prevent that muscle mass. And so, but, uh, sorry, here, so, um, uh, so when you have a proximal tubule not working, then if there's a bicarbonate reabsorption problem, you can get renal tubular acidosis. So the thing is that you just have a lower bicarbonate level then. And uh, while the, the, the really most of the acidity that we eat gets this excreted by the distal tubule, and that's why the distal tubule, when the distal tubule is not working, then you need bone, bone bufferage, and that's how we get into trouble with like renal calcinosis and uh, kidney stones with distal tubular acidosis, not with proximal tubular acidosis. Fanconi syndrome, and then... Uh, loop diabetics are secreted by the proximal tubule, so that's one of the downsides of loop diabetics. In order to work, they have to be secreted. And when people have like renal insufficiency, there's a lot of competition for secretion because of all the uremic toxin we retain, and then loop diabetics don't work very well. You need higher doses. And uh, you can inhibit the proximal tubule with SGLT inhibitors and also acetazolamide and topiramate, which will also work on carbonic anhydrase downstream. <coughs> Um, so here's our loop of handler. So we go down here, and then we come back up here, and we go to the thick ascending loop, limb of the loop of handler, which has a target of furosemide here. So this, this, here, this here is a transporter, all powered by sodium-potassium ATPase. Of, uh, uh, it takes two chlorides in and one potassium and one sodium. Now, in the, in the urine here, there is like 140, there's a lot of sodium, but very little potassium. So this wouldn't work well if we couldn't recycle the potassium through a potassium channel because there's just not enough potassium to get going here. So this is what WOMK comes in here, so you have a potassium recycling here. And then things come out on the other side. If the chloride would not come out here, this wouldn't, working, this wouldn't be working either, right? So if any of this system here is not working, then you would have what's called a Barter syndrome or the effect of, of, of fluorosamide. And the other interesting thing is that the stoichiometry of putting two chlorides in for one sodium just creates a, a lumen positivity that pushes other cations through the paracellular pathway. So when you think about it, that's how you can get another sodium in for just one oxygen burned. You know? So that's how you get, like, it's an energy-saving feature to have this asymmetry of charges because the asymmetry of charges allows you to push in, to pull more ions through, you know, for without burning more, more oxygen and more ATP. And so the urine here gets dilute, and the diuretics we have only work on this side. 
question is, could you have a chloride channel inhibitor? So then you would have a loop diuretic, you know, that work, that would not be, have to be secreted into the tubular lumen that would be neat. And so now the same transporter can also uh, accept ammonium. And that's important because that's how we build up, that's the sodium and the ammonium and uh, uh, basically all the solid build up a concentration gradient. So, loop, so if you inhibit the thick ascending limb, then there's less concentration gradient. And we use that, for example, in SEADH, where you don't want the urine to be, con to be uh, uh, concentrated too much. Or so. Uh, so, um, and so here the, uh, uh, so, and then um, if you, so if we inhibit the, the, uh, the, the uh, furosemide target in the thick ascending limb, then we also decrease ammonia reabsorption that leads to metabolic alkalosis. That's how we get uh, alkalosis also in the thick ascending limb. Magnesium also comes, uh, is 60% of magnesium reabsorbed in the thick ascending limb. And that works because of the, the lumen electropositivity created by this functioning ROMK, NK, CC2, that's like the name for the, the forosomite target system here, and uh, pushes the magnesium there. And what's interesting is that there's a calcium sensing receptor here, where the question is why do we have that there? So it probably it, it prevents this from working too much, so we don't have too much calcium in the thick ascending limb and don't get calcifications there. And so uh, when people have aminoglycoside toxicity, aminoglycosides are, are cationic, like uh, gentamicin or amikacin. They actually stimulate the calcium sensing receptor, receptor and also shut this down. They have like a furosemide effect or like, if you want, like a Bartha syndrome effect. So when this thick ascending limb is not working, you get a Bartha syndrome, like volume depletion, because we don't reabsorb a big part of the salt, normal or low blood pressure despite elevated venin aldosterone level, polydipsia, polyuria, because the concentration gradient is not working, hypochloremic metabolic alkalosis, hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia, hypercalciuria, basically it all looks like forzomite side effects. So where does the name Barter syndrome now comes from? So in 1962, uh, Barter, basically he found a kid with those symptoms. And uh, being an endocrinologist, he, uh, he did an adrenalectomy, which didn't really help. And he also did a drive-by kidney biopsy, where he found like, uh, that the juxtaglomerular complex was, hyper, was uh, hypertrophied. It is hypertrophied because there's so much salt coming here, and it has to work more by trying to shut down uh, the kidney. Then it's interesting, these old papers, they all have like, pictures of naked children, you know, then nobody asks for consent. Or so, you know, it's, it's interesting, it's different times. But actually, this same thing is pretty frequent. This was described before. You know, Bartas was described before Bartas. You know, just, I thought that's, that's interesting. And also in other countries, you know, it's not like the first one, but, but it was named after him. And so now, uh, this, this, the Bartas really gave people a hard time to figure out, you know. So if you read some older, when we were in medical school, when you read about Bartas, it was incomprehensible, you know. This was like a hyperprostaglandin hyper syndrome, and you wonder how does all this stuff fit in, right? And the thing is, nobody really knew for, knew for sure. So the uh, juxtaglomerular hypertrophy, the hyperprostaglandinism, they're all like epiphenomenon, you know, and none of them was really the, uh, the, the problem. And then in Lipton's lab, they, they cloned the, uh, this transporter here. So this is a genetic classification of Barter syndrome. So the, the furosemide uh, target and the ROMK, they work in action together. And they're like the, the backbone of two, the thick ascending limb. If they are knocked out, this causes severe volume depletion. And this is like an antenatal syndrome that is very severe. And uh, then you can get uh, also the same syndrome if the chloride channel are not working because the chloride has to leave the, the cells because of transcellular absorption or if there's a problem with the calcium uh, sensing receptor. And so this here would be nice to have an, so this, all this could be diuretic targets. And now other dysfunction here, so when we use loop diuretics basically, to treat hypercalcemia, so what we do is we, we prevent the lumen electropositivity that pushes the calcium through the paracellular channels, right? And so what we do is basically we, 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 we uh, with forosemide, we create features of the Barter syndrome to treat hypercalcemia. The same thing for SEADH. You know, when we use uh, loop diuretics, then we prevent the 
the, the proper medullary concentration gradients, and then we also, there's also features of the Barter syndrome. So basically, with the loop diuretic, we, we produce a Barter syndrome. And you can have like the same symptoms with aminoglycosides, and then with cisplatin, and uh, the, same, uh, the same looks, uh, laxative abuse, chronic diarrhea produce uh, also a volume depletion and have like the same, same picture without. Uh, so then after the uh, thick ascending limb comes a distal convoluted tuber. And uh, so what we have here is a thiazide target. And uh, in, this is the early uh, distal convoluted tuber. And then in the second part of the distal convoluted tuber, there is also ENAC and together with the thiazide, and this part is already is aldosterone sensitive. And so here, so what the thiazide is a sodium chloride co-transporter, and it transports one sodium, one chloride, so this is electroneutral, right? Whereas ENAC just brings the sodium in, and so when the sodium is, uh, then the lumen gets more negative, that pushes the chloride, so. And so the ENAC, uh, sorry, here, the, the thiazide co-transporter only works here, is powered by sodium-potassium ATPase, and that needs the potassium channel again to recycle, this time on the basolateral side. And when this channel here is lost, you, you get like the, uh, you get a syndrome here of, uh, similar to Gittelmann's, but with some also seizures, neurological abnormalities, as the EAST uh, syndrome. And uh, so the loss of function of this causes the Gittelmann syndrome. So the, uh, uh, what about the hypercalcemia? The hypercalcemia is, a, is, a, is most likely it comes from the proximal, increased proximal calcium reabsorption because of uh, volume depletion it causes. So this is Gittelman. I left this here in 1966. He described this. So now the question is that made it more confusing then because you had Bartos, people tried to figure it out, and Gittelman to figure it out. And then the first one who have found a way to distinguish this was a, pedi a pediatric nephrologist from Israel, Chimovitz, and this is called a Chimovitz test. So basically, when you have a Gittelman syndrome, you give thiazides, nothing happens, right? Because uh, in Gittelman, the thiazide target is already not working. But if you give frosamide a loop diuretic, you get a big diuretic effect. And the other way around, when there's a Barter syndrome, in Barter syndrome, you can give a lot of frosamide and nothing happens with urine output because uh, the frosamide uh, the, the target is already dysfunctional because of the Barter syndrome, right? But if you give a thiazide, then you prevent the distal convoluted tubule from compensating for the, uh, for the loss of function in the thick ascending limb, and you get a large diuretic effect. So this is the Chimovitz test, you know? Sorry. And so we see there's a little bit of this we see when, uh, uh, when people take loop diuretics for a long time for heart failure and get... Uh, uh, and develop diuretic resistance, so you have like more, uh, there's hypertrophy in the distal uh, in convoluted tubule. And so here, so what you can do is you do combination treatments for the mild metolazone. And uh, so this is also an interesting thing is that, you know, a kidney transplant. So someone with hypertension gets transplanted kidney with Gittelman, then hypertension is cured because they have like an inbuilt thiazide, you know, so. And then, uh, uh, so now there is a very confusing syndrome that used to be confusing for the, in the distal convoluted tubule that's called Gordon syndrome, after Mr. Gordon described it, and the first paper, the second paper he has, you already call it Gordon syndrome, you know, that's how it got established in England. But it's like familial hyperkalemia, hyperkalemic hypertension. So it has a confusing pathogenesis because it has features of hypoaldosteronism, hyperkalemia and hyperkalemic metabolic acidosis, and also hyperaldosteronism, so it's hypertension. So you have hyperkalemia and hypertension together and hypercalciuria. So basically it's the, the mirror image of Gittelman syndrome, and it's, it's very sensitive to thiazides. Thiazide fix it. So that suggests it's probably something wrong with the distal convoluted tubule here. And so uh, uh, here in Lyric Lipton's lag, they actually found a mutation WNK kinase that uh, produces syndrome. So now the question is, what are the WND with no lysine kinase doing here? So this is normal here. So that is uh, the, the uh, thiazide target uh, is being, uh, depends on, uh, on, on, on phosphorylases here and then WNK. And there's inhibitor, non-inhibitor, and actually in the, uh, in the uh, Gordon syndrome, you find this were like the first abnormalities discovered were with WNK. But WNK, uh, uh, you know, there's ubiquitin ligases, 
that regulate WNK, Kelch, and Cullen, and most of the abnormalities in Gordon-Sonoma actually those ones here. So this is normal, and this is when the thiazide target is really activated. So, uh, so mutant WNK just, just shoves that stuff on the membrane, and then you have a lot of like sodium chloride reabsorption in the tubule. And so the WNK are the only known activators of uh, SPAC and OS1 and basically of the thiazide thing. So hormones that regulate blood pressure activate NCC through WNK. And so there is angiotensin, aldosterone, insulin. And here I draw your attention to vasopressin because vasopressin, you know, vasopressin has to basically, um, when you have a lot of vasopressin, you know, you would have theoretically a trouble of getting rid of potassium. So imagine you're really thirsty and all you got to drink is orange juice. That potassium could potentially kill you unless you find a way of getting rid of it. So vasopressin has to inhibit potassium uh, 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 sort of reabsorption so you get rid of potassium and also tracholimus. And so uh, then the other transporter in the distal convoluted tubule is ENAC. And ENAC, that's a really interesting story. So ENAC has to be activated from by, a, by a protease on the lumen side of the, uh, um, uh, 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 sorry, of the, of the uh, um, uh, distal convoluted tubule. And, you know, when people have proteinuria, then they always have swelling somewhere. They always have, like, volume expansion. The question always was, why does that happen? And so, actually, when you have proteinuria, you filter, there's more protein in the urine. When you have nephrotic range, proteinuria is a lot of protein. And there is plasmin that is filtered too, that is also in the urine. And in the urinary tract, there's urokinase. And so plasminogen will be cleaved, sorry, to plasmin in the urinary tract, and that activates ENAC, and that causes a sodium retention. So that's how, like, anybody who has diabetes and proteinuria has swelling. So that's how, uh, that's an ENAC activity. In ENAC, you could inhibit with amylaride. And so the distal tubule here uh, is divided by two parts. This is the first part and the second part. In the first part, you have the thiazide transporter. And then with the second part, there's ENAC coming. And the, in the second part also, you have 11-beta uh, uh, steroid dehydrogenase type 2. And that is an essential uh, enzyme to make the steroid aldosterone responsive. And so what's the role of this in hypertension? So something that's new, different from other receptors, you know. So normally you have like a hormone and a hormone-specific receptor. So when I was a fellow once, I mentioned, I said like aldosterone receptor, I got yelled at and I didn't understand why, they didn't explain me. But so the thing is that the aldosterone, the mineralocorticoid receptor is extremely promiscuous and basically the, the, specificity, the specificity of the receptor is determined by an enzyme. So uh, not by the receptor itself, you know. So that's, um, this enzyme is 11-beta hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase. And so it, it accepts all kinds of uh, uh, steroids, including cortisol. And, but the, this enzyme inactivates this. And then more importantly, basically, it makes sure there's no NAD around. And so the, uh, without NAD, this receptor is dormant. It cannot be activated. So that means that in the distal convoluted tubule in the first part, uh, can, is not responsive to aldosterone. And so we wonder why, what's the advantage of this? Why does this happen? And then other clinical things is that the same hormones inhibited by licorice and, and also um, the mineral corticoid receptor is, uh, is inhibited by progesterone in um, uh, so, so pregnant women who have um, uh, so you have hyperaldosteronism gets better and better in pregnancy. And here, so there's a lungfish. It's the first creature to known to make aldosterone to have a mineralocorticoid receptor because it's, it's another one of those ancient things that we carry around. This here is Geller syndrome. So Geller syndrome is basically it's a mineralocorticoid receptor mutation where people who get, have this pregnancy, it gets activated by progesterone. Normally it wouldn't. It also gets activated by spironolactone, so people get hypertension. And if you try to treat with spironolactone, it gets worse, actually. It doesn't get better. And so here, and so uh, after the uh, distal convoluted tubule comes the collecting duct. And the principal cell is the main, uh, is, is the one here with ENAC and WOMK. And this is where uh, sodium is reabsorbed and potassium secreted in response to aldosterone. And uh, uh, so, um, so ENAC causes an electrogenic transport. It's not an, it doesn't, uh, it's all powered by the ATP here. And then are the intercalated cells. There's the A-type. 
The A-type secretes acid, and the, uh, it has a sodium potassium, sorry, it has a, uh, uh, it has a hydro, it has a proton transporting ATPase on the apical side, and then the, the B-type of inter, intercalated cells has it on the basolateral side. And um, uh, here, and it's involved in bicarbonate secretion via pendrin. So pendrin is, a, is also something that is a relatively recent discovery. And actually, pendrin and this uh, sodium chloride bi bicarbonate co-transporter form a functional unit, as we're going to say. So now here, the, you think there's a mistake here, because where is sodium potassium ATPase on intercalated cells, right? Because every cell has sodium potassium ATPase to power us, to drive us, and there's none here. It's very faint staining. It's one of the reasons why for so long it was thought that these are just conducts and they don't do anything metabolic until uh, here this is a, a French group they figured out that they're energized by a proton rather than a potassium pump so these cells they're actually resistant to urbane every other cell blows up and uh, pops basically with urbane but they don't they don't they are they are powered with a with a protonase that raises with a proton pump so that raises the questions, are there any other cells in the body that, that don't depend on the sodium potassium ATPase? You know? so, so here, and this is a, just a picture I have to show. So here green is aquaporin, and these are the principal cells. And, the, in, and in red here, so red is the, uh, is, is the uh, vesicular ATPase, that's the proton pump. And you see this here, and the, um, the type A cells on the apical side, and B cells on both sides. So, it's, so that you see that these graphs, they're not just made up, actually have, uh, you know, they are, uh, uh, that's where they come from. And so potassium secretion, so how do we secrete potassium? So there's little potassium in blood, and basically when it arrives in the distal, in the distal nephron, there isn't really much to, uh, we, uh, there's, you know, we did all of the absorption already. So potassium is regulated by secretion, basically, only other than like sodium where we have to reabsorb a lot, but there's not much to reabsorb there, so because we have little potassium in the blood. And so how does this work? So when aldosterone comes as the main hormone re regulator, so aldosterone activates ENAC and uh, ROMK, and then the, uh, powered by the sodium potassium ATPase in the principal cells. Uh, so potassium goes in, and sorry, sodium goes in, potassium goes out. Uh, so this, so potassium secretion here depends on the availability of uh, sodium. So sodium has to get here. If there's no sodium, we cannot secrete potassium. Right? And then if you have a lot of flow, there's a different channel, the Maxi-K channel. So the Maxi-K channel was discovered in Barter syndrome, basically, when uh, type 2 of Barter's is a, is a deficiency in 1K. So when you have a potassium channel deficiency, how can you get hypokalemic? You should be getting hyperkalemic because you can't get rid of potassium, right? So there must be another potassium channel, and this is how, how the Maxi-K was discovered. The other thing is when they did experiments with channels, there was no flow. And this one here has a cilia, and it's flow activated. So when there's a lot of flow here, then we, secrete, we use Maxi-K, and Maxi-K can compensate for 1K uh, 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 defect here. So, uh, so to secrete potassium, we need sodium here, and the lumen has to be negative potential, so, the, so uh, ENAC has to be there and activated, and the more flow we have, also the more potassium secretion. And so there's like a paleo diet hypothesis, so that when our en 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 ancestors ate like large protein-rich meals or so, they increase the GFR, and so the increased flow stimulates Maxi-K to buffer hypokalemia. And then the principal cells also are the ones that respond to vasopressin by putting water channels in for water reabsorption. And then there is, uh, this here is like a mystery slide. So there is, so the thiazide diuretics, it's known that there has a thiazide target in the distal convoluted tubule, but when, uh, uh, when, when this was uh, blocked, then you still have, a so in knockout mice for this, for the, for the thiazide target in the distal convoluted tubule, you still had a thiazide response, so there must be other targets. And this often was a mystery. So there is a collecting duct electroneutral sodium chloride reabsorption responsive to thiazide, blockable by thiazide, without having the thiazide-sensitive transporter, NCC. So, uh, and the mystery solved here is actually Pendrin here. So Pendrin is, a, is an anion pump. It, it secretes hydrogen, sorry, it secretes, uh, sorry, bicarbonate, and uh, 
and uh, uh, brings chloride in, and chloride is recycled here, so the net effect here is that uh, sodium chloride reabsorption. And Penvin probably also has effects on ENAC by changing, because ENAC is sensitive to the pH here. And so uh, uh, this Penvin, this entity is stimulated by aldosterone. It's part of how aldosterone works. And so all this is like in the flux. It's like nobody really knows for sure how this fats fits in into uh, uh, blood pressure, volume control. So where's Penguin coming from? This, this is a Lancet article by Vaughan Penwood. So he f just found a curious association of deaf mutism and goiter, and he thought, why this association? And later found out that people who have goiter and are deaf and have a pendant mutation, they actually are also very prone to metabolic alkalosis. And so what does Penvin do? So in the thyroid, it's an iodine transporter. Iodine is like the largest atom we have in our body. And also it's like stardust, basically. It came generated by some supernova somewhere. And then, <laughs> and then it's in the ear and it's also in the kidney. And so uh, in the kidney and the kidney not working well, you can have so um, this uh, venal tubular acidosis. And so there's inborn and acquired uh, uh, things. And, this venal tubular acidosis requires bone buffering because we cannot get rid of our acid load. So the thing is that only in the distal tubule can you really generate like a, like a hydrogen radiant. In the proximal tubule, it's way too leaky. The proximal tubule just does like so bicarbonate reabsorption. Distal tubule, you can really, that's where the pH gets lowered in the urine. So, and then when with type 2, with distal, you can get nephrocalcinosis. And so now here. So under normal circumstances, so the delivery of sodium to the distal nephron is inversely associated with serum aldosterone levels. Hence, renal potassium excretion is kept independent from extracellular fluid volume changes. So when you have decreased effective arterial blood volume, you have increased proximal sodium reabsorption and decreased distal delivery. And you also have decreased aldosterone here. And then when you have an increased volume, then you have increased sodium delivery, but a decreased aldosterone. And it's only when you have increased aldosterone and increased distal delivery that you can get in trouble with renal potassium wasting. And so, how, and so now the question is, so there's the aldosterone-sensitive distal tubule, and then there's the, the distal convoluted tubule that's insensitive to aldosterone because it doesn't have beta-2 hydroxylase. So how do they work together? So in volume depletion, so AT2, only AT2 acts here because uh, aldosterone can't act here on, on, the, on, the, on the DCT1 because uh, there's no EF-beta hydroxylase. So it stimulates uh, NCC and, um, uh, in, in here. And then aldosterone stimulates ENAC and WOMK. And so uh, um, but angel, so, so aldosterone, this uh, stimulates ENAC, but AT2 actually also decreases uh, 1K. So what you have here is uh, uh, sodium reabsorption through ENAC and through, uh, through DCC, but no potassium secretion. So that's how in, high, in volume depletion, the kidney is able to absorb sodium chloride and to conserve potassium. In hyperkalemia, it's different. There's direct potassium effects um, uh, so here, so there is no angiotensin 2, and that means that here NCC, uh, uh, so the, the thiazide uh, in the DCT1 is not uh, activated uh, because aldosterone doesn't work here because of a lack of 11-beta hydrogenase. So the, um, uh, sorry, so, so we know that the uh, NCC in the distal tubule, so basically in order to have potassium uh, reabsorption of this in the aldosterone-sensitive distal tubule, you need to have sodium delivery. And so the, the first part of the distal convoluted tubule that's not responsive to aldosterone is the one that delivers the sodium for ENAC to have potassium secretion. And also, so that's probably the thing why we have this part of the distal convoluted tubule that's not responsive to aldosterone. And so, uh, so WNK4 is uh, uh, the one that we know from Gordon syndrome. It's probably like the molecular switch here. So with hyperkalemia, WNK4 here uh, uh, so inhibits the, the, uh, uh, the, th the thiazide responsive and, um, sorry, and, uh, um, and yeah, sorry, um, yeah, I'm, so, so I'm, I'm blocking now. So here, so the, uh, so let's go. So the, um, 
So in, in hypovolemia, in the distal convoluted tubules, so NCC is, is increased, and, uh, but ROMK is decreased. So that's why in hypovolemia, you get sodium reabsorption without potassium secretion. And in hyperkalemia, uh, uh, in hyperkalemia, so uh, ROMK is more active because the, uh, uh, the inhibition uh, here is, is lifted. So in... So WNK seems like the molecular switch for, for this effect that you can separate sodium uh, reabsorption and potassium secretion. And so, the, uh, um, so by the effect of angiotensin. So in, if you have a mutated WNK4, like in Gordon syndrome, then uh, you have the, uh, the sodium reabsorption and also the, potass the potassium conservation. And that's how you get hypertension, hyperkalemia together. And that's basically the same effect like if you have like the angiotensin 2 response that you get in hypovolemia. Hypovolemia, we conserve potassium but we reabsorb sodium. So basically, Gordon is like the renal response to hypovolemia in the distal tubule on steroids. That's how, you, how we get Gordon syndrome. And so the uh, vasopressin probably also is a, is a WNK effect because it also it, it inhibits the uh, distal convoluted tubule, and that's how there's no uh, uh, and that's how it influences the, the potassium uh, secretions and stimulation. So the uh, the ability aldosterone stimulates sodium retention hypovolemia without potassium losses, and aldosterone can also stimulate potassium excretion hyperkalemia without sodium retention has been called the aldosterone paradox. So now there's also aldosterone escape. So when people have primary hyperaldosteronism, it doesn't last forever. They don't get like that terrible edema. So how does this work? So the aldosterone response, aldosterone is preformed, is quick to turn on, but it's slow to turn off because it's a genetic thing. It's a, you know, it's a mineral corticoid receptor acts on the nucleus. There's transcription, translation, etc. And um, uh, so, so we, the body has like other signalings. Uh, signaling pathways. So there is the, the purine pathway. So purine pathway is another ancient pathway. And so when you have uh, flow stimulated, uh, uh, when flow, uh, when potassium BK is uh, stimulated by, uh, by flow, there is ATP release, and ATP decreases ENAC. So the body has ways to turn off ENAC uh, that independent of aldosterone. So let's go to this one here, sorry. Uh, so now, what's the effect on a low-potassium diet on NCC? So basically, the bottom line is that in the low-potassium diet, the thiazide-sensitive transporter seems to be inhibited. So, so it seems to be stimulated. So the reason is that if in the, in the, in the, because the sodium that the, this, that the first part of the distal convoluted tubule gives to the aldosterone-sensitive uh, nephron allows us to, uh, to, to, to secrete potassium. And so when we don't want to secrete potassium, then the NCC is absorbing sodium. So that's how in hypokalemia, the sodium potassium conservation is linked to sodium reabsorption in the first part of the distal convoluted tubule. And so we all know about the uh, role of, so that, um, uh, so, so here we go to the role of, so what's the role of, so basically if, if uh, so what's the role of dietary potassium and hypertension? So the uh, renal conservation of sodium potassium under condition of potassium deficiency could be an evolutionary adaptation because dietary and sodium deficiency probably occur together. But modern diet has changed a lot. So this year is basically, this is retrojected paleo diet where people had much higher potassium intake than we had today. And so the question is that this could be uh, something that makes us more hypertensive. So it's not new that you can use potassium to treat hypertension. This is the DASH diet. DASH diet has about 120 or so uh, 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 millimole per, per potassium, whereas normally a person on average eats like uh, 70 or 60 or so. And if you compare that to the paleo diet, where you had like 400, today we eat much less potassium than in the past. And because of how our kidneys are primed, we are less prone to sodium reabsorption and hypertension. And so this is a summary here. So symptoms involving potassium, sodium transport distal near uh, nephron. So this is the NCC, the thiazide-sensitive transporter. Gain of function in hyperaldosteronism and then in Gordon syndrome. 
Chacolimus produces hyper, uh, like hypertension and hyperkalemia, very similar to Gordon syndrome, and also its gain of function by a low potassium diet. And this is necessary in order to conserve potassium in the aldosterone-sensitive distal nephron. Loss of function, here is Gittelman syndrome, thiazides, aldosterone escape by proinergic pathways, and also a high potassium diet inhibits this one here because we need to secrete potassium. So we don't want to have sodium at the... Uh, um, uh, uh, down there. And so this is ENAC, gain of function, hyperalcid little syndrome, and proteinuria, ENAC is activated, and then loss of function is, uh, there's a pseudo hyperalcidism, amyloride, trimeterin, and also aldosterone escape. So this is like all monogenic forms of hypertension on one slide. There's Gallison, so here we start off here in the distal convoluted tubules with Gordon syndrome. These are the mutations known to cause Gordon syndrome. Uh, and then here's, um, here there's 11-beta uh, hydroxylase deficiency and then Geller syndrome here and then a little syndrome. Well, this works on ENAC. And so I, um, so, uh, uh, this, so who needs emojis when Dr. Schnett is reading real pathologies? <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, thank you very much. And, and so, <laughs> thank you. Thank you.